Well, uh, thank you very much, Abhita, uh, for such um, inspiring reminiscences. Um, I'm going to be a lot more prosaic. Um, I think it's uh, important for me to say that we are sort of moving from one such highly acclaimed literature from India to, to another one, arguably uh, the greatest um, Urdu poet of the 20th century. Um, I'm going to be uh, looking at him, uh, Sikhbal, um, through a, a set of letters, nine letters that uh, he wrote to Edward John Thompson. Uh, before we look at Iqbal's letters, nine and all, to, uh, to Thompson, I think it would be useful briefly to have some sense of who these correspondents were. Edward John Thompson, father of E.P. E. Thompson, the illustrious author of The Making of the English Working Class, went to India as a teacher of English literature at uh, Bankura Wesleyan College in Bengal in 1910, stayed there until 1923. He met the great Bengali poet Rabindranath Tagore, learned Bengali and returned to England. He was appointed lecturer of Bengali at the, uh, um, could you turn the next one? Um, he was appointed lecturer um, at the University of Oxford and was a research fellow at the Indian history, um, in Indian history at Oriel College from 1936 to 1940. Thereafter, he devoted the rest of his life to writing novels, poetry, and histories of Indo-British relations. Thompson described himself as, and I quote him, a liberal conservative with a touch of socialism. Make, it, make of it what you will. He followed Indian uh, politics closely, in the latter part of his life, his visits to, uh, his, uh, to, to India, twice as uh, a guardian correspondent, brought him in, into intimate contact with uh, Gandhi and Nehru, both of whom he held in high regard. Perhaps less so Jinnah, the so-called founder of Pakistan, partly because of his own prejudices and politics. He desired Indian unity, doubted Muslim solidarity, thought two nations a terrible solution, and considered Pakistan strategically and ethically impossible. Nevertheless, Iqbal, he regarded as a friend and a central leader of Indian Muslims. What about Iqbal? Sir Muhammad Iqbal, arguably one of the great Indian Muslim philosophers and poets of all time, came from a Punjabi Kashmiri background with Hindu Brahmin ancestry. T.W. Arnold, a scholar of India, while in India, stimulated his interest in Western philosophy, which he read at Trinity College, Cambridge. He was called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn and obtained his doctorate from the University of Munich before returning to India in 1910, deeply influenced by Hegelian, Bergsonian, and Nietzschean ideas of the boundless evolution of humanity. Could you tell me? These, um, uh, capture, uh, a catch in Bali Jibril, thus. He asked God, and I put it up there, And so really what we are talking about, that day evolution that he had, uh, had been thinking about for some time, an unending sort of kind of expansive universe, cosmos, um, that was going to go on for a long time. 
While he practiced as a barrister to earn a living, it was through his concern for the global plight of Muslims and his elaboration of strategies for Muslim regeneration that he had a lasting impact on South Asian Muslim minds. In order to pull Muslims out of their moral and social lethargy and political decline, he propounded ideas that infused Islamic rationalism with those strands in Western philosophy which affirmed revitalized individual and collective activism. His intellectual caliber was recognized through the conferment of a, of a knighthood in 1923. And from the 1920s, his engagement with Indian politics, both in terms of ideas and practical activity, grew rapidly. He was elected member of the Punjab Legislative Assembly in 1926, a seat which he occupied until 1930. At the Allahabad session in 1930, as president of the All India Muslim League, he expounded the concept of two nations in India, one Muslim, the other Hindu. His politics was underpinned by his evolving philosophy, which he elaborated in his poems and more systematically in his speeches and lectures. When it comes to assessing Iqbal's work, what is clear is that uh, it is not amenable to any rigid encapsulation. He has been popularly hailed as, quote, the herald of Pakistan, its spiritual father. Others have rejected this claim and presented him as a champion of Hindu-Muslim solidarity and a unique symbol of India's composite culture. Still, others view Iqbal as, and I quote, Karl Marx of the East, an Islamic socialist and a philosopher, philosopher of egalitarian universalism. Are these Iqbal's mutually exclusive and contradictory, or can we identify an underlying coherent dynamic in his evolution? The breadth of his thought, seemingly inconsistent, has nevertheless enabled him to appeal to a spectrum which stretches from Muslim modernists such as Jinnah at one end to fundamentalists such as Maulana Maududi at the other. So, what do these letters tell us? Well, they certainly offer a snapshot of the breadth of his intellectual creativity and the complexity of his political thought. For instance, in his references to the French uh, scholar Louis Massignon's biography of Mansour Halaj, now he was a 10th century Sufi who was persecuted and hanged for claiming, An al haq I am the truth. I am God. And to Reynold um, Nicholson's translation of Rumi's Mathnavi, uh, poetic form in, in Persian, we have glimpses of his deep engagement with immanentist as opposed to transcendental Sufism, the, the mystical spiritual dimension of Islam. The immense tribute that he pays uh, Rumi in the following verse um, reflects his own philosophical inclinations. He is not a prophet, yet God has granted him a revealed book. But it is in his engagement with political ideas that these letters offer the most interesting insights. In order to understand the issues on which Iqbal's touches, Iqbal touches in his letters to Thompson, it's important to get some sense of the changing political context in India 
and the British government's engagement with it. The Simon Commission and the Motilal Nehru report in the late 1920s had made a number of constitutional recommendations. Intense discussions had taken place at the three roundtable conferences in London at the beginning of the 1930s, and a new constitution was about to be promulgated. Iqbal had energetically presented the Muslim case. From these letters, we obtain an idea of his reasoning with regard to the political positions that he held at this juncture. More specifically, they offer glimpses of his positions, which he elaborated elsewhere with regard to the relationship between religion and politics, democracy, and the idea of Pakistan. Here is what Iqbal says in his letter of 20th June 1933 with regard to religion and politics and nationalism. I'm not interested in politics as such. It was my interest in Islam as a moral polity that drove me to politics. I felt that Hindu nationalism would eventually lead to atheism. I further found that Muslims on account of sheer ignorance of Islamic ideals were being swept away from before, uh, before the forces of this so-called nationalism. For Iqbal, not only was there an essential relationship between religion and politics, but religion was the foundation of politics. Islam, he asserts, is a single, unanalyzable reality. It encompasses politics. The basis of, Islamic, uh, of, of the Islamic State is a moral purpose, and politics has its roots in the spiritual life of man. Hence, for him, the separatism between church and state was a qualified one. The separation in an Islamic state is not based on a metaphysical dualism of spirit and matter, which for him does not exist in Islam, as it does in the West, but on the, I quote him, the performance of different kinds of functions. In the 5th of February 1934 letter, he specifically refers to this matter in relation to Turkey. I met a very interesting gentleman. Here on representation of the new Muslim Republic in Chinese Turkestan, he gave me a very interesting account of the separation of church and state in Turkey and of the way in which the Usman Turks justified this step on the basis of the Quran. For Iqbal, the Turkish view was perfectly sound. As he understood it, and I quote him, the structure of Islam permits the view that Turks have taken in accentuating separation of church and state. For this separation has meant separation of functions, not of ideas. For Iqbal, the idea of a universal caliphate combining spiritual and temporal obligations had failed in practice and, I quote him, cannot work as a living factor in the organization of modern Islam. In the abolition of the Khilafat, he says, Islam has been at work through Ataturk. The totally secular state that Ataturk had established along Western lines was not a problem for Iqbal, since Muslim norms and values remained hegemonic in Turkish society. He says that the truth is, he declares that among the Muslim nations of today, Turkey alone, he has attained to self-consciousness 
She alone has passed from the ideal to the real. The separation of religion from government was only a problem when Muslims were a minority and were therefore unable freely to pursue their chosen cultural and political aspirations. This, however, was precisely the situation that Muslims faced in India. Iqbal saw the Indian National Congress as the paramount vehicle for Hindu nationalism. Jawaharlal Nehru, a major leader of the Congress, himself agreed that it was, and I quote Nehru here, dominated by Hindus and had a Hinduized outlook. The logic of its secular ideology of Nehru's, according to Iqbal, godless socialism, would inevitably lead to the dissolution of Hinduism and produce atheism. That is why he was concerned about Muslims being swept away before the forces of this so-called territorial nationalism, and why he opposed pro-Congress Muslim leaders such as Maulana Abul Kalam Azad, sometime president of the Congress, and Maulana Hussein Ahmad Madni. The second set of issues he raises in his letters to Thompson concerns the introduction of a democracy in India. He says, but you know, I'm no believer in democracy. The step towards democracy, fatal in my opinion, however, has already been taken. We must now prepare ourselves for the financial ruin, the political chaos, and the dissolution of Hinduism, which are likely to follow the introduction of democracy in this vast, undisciplined, and starving country. Now, on the face of it, Iqbal appeared to set his face against the concept of democracy. However, if you look at his speeches, articles, and statements, the overall me message was rather different. He did not seem to be opposed to democracy in absolute terms, nor did he object to it in principle. On the contrary, he was rather partial to the goals of democracy, individual freedom to choose, equality, and repudiation of monarchy, despotism, and imperialism. Islam and the Quran, Iqbal claimed, accepted the principle of the establishment of government through election by free will of individual citizens. What he objected to was the manner in which British democracy was sought to be applied in India. This becomes clear from the detailed criticism that he made of the Simon Report, the Motilal Nehru Report, and the various proposals on Indian self-determination debated at the roundtable conferences at the beginning of the 1930s. He argued that the introduction of a limited franchise based on property and educational qualifications without safeguards for the minorities would ensure the domination of the Hindu in Muslim, even in Muslim majority provinces. The proposals for the abolition of separate electorates and reservation of seats and weightage for Muslims in provinces which they constituted majority, a majority would deprive, and I quote him, the relatively poor and backward group of 80 million Muslims of the real benefits of democracy. He added that Muslims sought such safeguards not because they feared the democratic system, but because they wanted to, and I quote him again, to avoid the domination of one religious group in the guise of democracy. A third issue that Iqbal raises in these letters was that of Muslim nationhood and the idea of Pakistan. 
In the June 1933 letter, he asserted, the Muslims of India are a distinct people and must have an opportunity of free development in their own lives, on their own lines, sorry. While before his departure for Europe in 1905, there was much in Iqbal's writing that suggests a commitment to India's composite culture, a desire for Hindu-Muslim unity, and a fervor for achieving its freedom. After his return from Europe, he became much more aware of his Muslim identity, the decline and powerlessness of Muslims as a community, particularly relative to Hindus. In the last 20 years of his life, he gradually arrived at the conclusion that Muslims in India satisfied all the conditions required to be a nation and a subjugated one at that. Since he no longer saw a promising future for Muslims through the idea of synthetic culture or religious pluralism, he thought that if Muslims were to be free again, they had to become a politically self-willed community with their own center of power. In 1930, in his presidential address at the Allahabad session of the All India Muslim League, he gave his vision a concrete shape by suggesting the amalgamation of the three northwestern Muslim majority provinces, but within an Indian dominion. In the following October, while Iqbal was in England for the Roundtable Conference, Thompson, in a letter to the Times, accused him of pan-Islamic plotting and of being the architect of the demand for Pakistan, an independent state on the Indian subcontinent. Iqbal, in his repost, delivered a few days later in the same newspaper, denied such a plan and reiterated his Allahabad suggestion. Curiously, four years later, Thompson, in his review of Iqbal's reconstruction of the religious thought of Islam, which had just been published by Oxford University Press, again seemed to link Iqbal with the idea of Pakistan. In the letter in March 1934, Iqbal wrote, I've just read your review of my book. It is excellent, and I'm grateful to you for the very kind things you have said of me. But you have made one mistake which I hasten to point out as I consider it rather serious. You call me a protagonist of the scheme called Pakistan. Now, Pakistan is not my scheme. The one I suggested in my address is the creation of a Muslim province, i.e., a province having an overwhelming Muslim population in the northwest of India. This new province will be, according to my scheme, a part of the proposed Indian Federation. Pakistan scheme proposes a separate dominion. This scheme originated in Cambridge. The authors of this um, uh, scheme believe that uh, our Muslim round tablers have sacrificed the Muslim nation on the altar of Hindu or the so-called Indian nationalism. And again, in his July 1934 letter to Thompson, he insisted that the amalgamation of the three provinces in the northwest of India will be of infinite advantage to England, India, and Islam. This train of thought seems to suggest that while in Iqbal's view there were countless communities in India, what he wished to, be, to do was fashion an integrated whole such that its unity may not be broken up by its inner diversity. 
At this stage, he was willing to reconcile the claims of Indian nationalism prov provided the cultural identity of Muslims could be preserved. However, we now know that in the rapidly changing circumstances of the late 1930s, and in particular the concern caused by the behavior of the Congress following its success in the 1937 provincial elections, in the last two years of his life, Iqbal was, so the evidence in his correspondence with Jinnah suggests, gradually moving towards the idea of demanding the establishment of one or more sovereign Muslim states through the division of India. Finally, what of the idea that Iqbal was a passionate protagonist of social justice and equality, a champion of the poor, the exploited and dispossessed masses? In the last of these letters written in July 1934, Iqbal recommended to Thompson his poem, Lenin in the Presence of God, one of a trilogy in his uh, Urdu collection, Bali Jibril. What was uh, uh, um, that was about to go to the press? Let us look briefly at what this poem, an imaginary monologue in which Lenin raises a number of profound issues. What is this poem about? Lenin Khuda ke huzur mein. Now it's a, it's, a, it's a long poem, and what I've done is uh, I've just uh, taken a couple of uh, extracts, the relevant ones, and, uh, and put them up there for you. So in one of those, he says, a blaze of art and science lights the West with darkness that no fountain of life dispels in high reared grace, in glory and grandeur, the towering bank outtops the cathedral roof. What they call commerce is a game of dice. For one, profit for millions swooping death. There, science, philosophy, scholarship, government, preach man's equality and drink men's death, blood. Naked debauch and want and unemployment. Are these mean triumphs of the Frankish arts? And then finally, omnipotent, righteous, thou, but bitter the hours, bitter the laborers chained hours in thy world. When shall this galley of gold's dominion founder, the world thy day of wrath, Lord, strands and waits? After acknowledging the ultimate reality, Iqbal, through Lenin's questioning, develops a provocative critique of the West. He saw Europe being in utter darkness and its capitalist system ruthlessly exploitive, exploitative of, the, of the East. There is a great deal here that expresses concern for the suffering of the poor and his intense opposition to oppression of every kind. He railed against feudal excesses vis-a-vis -vis the peasants. The Russian Revolution, in which he saw the possibilities of social justice for the masses, enthused him enormously so much so that he embraced it in the following way. Bolshevism plus God is equal to Islam. And while he rejected Nehru's godless socialism and had reservations about materialism's antipathy towards religion and its spiritual barrenness, he also saw it as an effective weapon for the liquidation of, the, and I quote him, the theologian and the mystic who purposely inveigle people with the object of 
exploiting their ignorance. So, Iqbal's correspondence with Thompson tells us a great deal about his thinking at this point in his life and the ways in which it changed over time. These letters, these traces, illuminate the ongoing rich and fruitful intellectual connections between Indians and Britons who were in some way connected with Oxford. Thank you.